You're listening to Amphibicast. What's up, everyone? Welcome back. I don't have a guest lined up for this week. I had to kind of shuffle a couple of people around. I had some guests that were originally set up for this week. And due to some scheduling conflicts and some work conflicts on on my behalf, I had to move some people around. But I still wanted to get a show out, and I wanted to put a lot of effort into picking a topic that I felt confident about something that I had dealt with over my 30 years of, of keeping frogs in the hobby. And I started thinking about something that happened on an Instagram post about a month ago. I, I'd post a picture of my white street frog on Instagram and Eric from Eric's frogs commented and asked me what I recommended as the best substrate for white street frogs. Well, this got me thinking. I mean, ultimately I'd like to develop an episode on white's tree frogs and a few other members of the Latoria genus, because I think they're great. They're great beginner frogs. They're pretty versatile. They're cool to look at, etc. But more importantly, I started thinking about his question, you know, what's the best type of substrate? And substrate can be a hot topic because many people have different opinions in terms of, you know, what the preferred substrate is for certain situations, for certain species, etc. But I'm going to preface this by saying that the purpose of this episode is not to endorse one substrate over the other. I don't think there's a single perfect substrate for every situation. Instead, I wanted to share some of my experiences with different substrates and some of the pros and cons associated with each. A disclaimer here, I want to make it clear that the different substrates I'm going to mention here work on different levels for different people. You may not have had the same experience that I have. So take what I say in the most neutral way possible because I'm a realist and I understand that every situation is different. Most importantly, though, if you are in doubt about a particular species, reach out to someone who's kept it successfully for a long time. Pick the person's brain, do some research, and don't rely exclusively on social media for all the answers. I think that if there's a lesson that we've learned from the past year, 2020, misinformation travels a lot faster than reliable information. And oftentimes, people who don't have a tremendous amount of experience are maybe trying to do the right thing by being very, very opinionated about a certain thing. And this applies with everything in life. But, you know, they might insist that you can only use one type of substrate and that might not necessarily be the case. There might be someone out there who's a lot more experienced than this person. And you might want to talk to that person first rather than, you know, getting into an argument with someone who might not necessarily have as much experience as that person purports to have. So be wary of social media. There are a lot of people out there on social media, though, who are good sources of information. I mean, you're generally going to know right away if the person listens to your concerns and understands and really wants to share share their expertise with you. You're going to pick up on that. You know, don't look for like confrontational people because you're you're never going to get anywhere with them anyway. So, you know, check out some scholarly articles, speak to some breeders, think about practicality, you know, think about is the substrate right for the animal that you want to keep? So to begin, I think that it behooves anyone interested in keeping an animal in captivity to consider the natural history of the animal you intend to keep. Ask yourself some very basic questions. Start at the bottom. Is the species arboreal? Is it terrestrial? Is it fossorial? Is it aquatic? Is it semi-aquatic? Is it a species that's tolerant of drier conditions? Does it need a substrate that holds moisture well? Does the species produce a lot of waste that requires frequent substrate change? These are some of the questions that we should ask ourselves when picking a substrate. If the goal is to keep the animal in 
say a more utilitarian condition, you want to make sure that that it's appropriate for the animal's needs. If you want to go with a more naturalistic approach, you want to make sure that that substrate is also practical for its purpose and not just visually appealing. It's very, very easy to go with a substrate that we think looks good, but later on we realize it was a poor choice because it doesn't function well in the long term, especially with a naturalistic type of terrarium, which is generally what people tend to strive for nowadays. I don't like to bias each episode towards dart frogs, but I suppose I'll start here. Substrate plays a big role in the dart frog hobby since they need to be kept in higher humidity conditions, you know, as opposed to some other commonly kept species. The substrate also often serves as a habitat for many of the resident microfauna that keep the vivarium clean and also double as feeders. So it's not just a habitat for the frogs themselves, it's also a habitat for the microfauna that functions so much in that vivarium. So you don't want a substrate that's going to rot, and at the same time you want something that's going to look nice but also be functional. And I think the best place to start would be ABG Mix. ABG Mix was developed by the Atlanta Botanical Gardens for orchids and other plants. And simply put, it's a mix of peat products, charcoal, sphagnum moss, bark, and tree fern. It's relatively simple and it works well. Well, why does it work? Because it drains well. It's less likely to go stagnant and it's a good medium for growing a lot of the tropical plants that many of us like to incorporate into our vivariums. It allows water to pass through it without becoming too swampy, the way that some of the cocoa products do. And because of the peat, it's acidic, and the acidic substrates tend to keep out a lot of the unwanted guests that we want. It generally keeps the environment cleaner, and you're less likely to have issues with, with microbes, and etc. So that's another thing that makes ABG a good choice. A lot of keepers, myself included, have their own recipes for mixing substrates similar to ABG. It can be tailored to the situation as needed. You can use you can use different ingredients. Um, some people use, for example, horticultural charcoal. I use lump hardwood charcoal. I've had different results for arbitrary reasons, but you know, you can use you can use any type of charcoal you choose to, but as long as it's not like briquettes that you would use for for barbecuing that have chemicals in them. So anything that you do source, you want to make sure that it's natural. It's not necessary for dart frogs to have uh, ABG mix as a substrate, but many people choose to use it and they do so pretty successfully. Now, as I said a few moments ago, drainage is important in a high humidity environment, especially if you have a misting system. So if you're using a misting system, that's another thing that you want to consider when you pick a substrate. A waterlogged substrate can quickly go anaerobic and release unwanted gases that are unpleasant and foul smelling and generally unhealthy for your, atom, your animals. If you're not sure what I mean, take a walk out through a swamp one day. When you pull your boots up out of that mud, that smell that you're getting, that like sulfur smell, that's the product of anaerobic respiration. It's that nasty kind of like stinky swamp gas. It's not something you want. It's not something your animals want. So you're going to want to make sure that your substrate is, is well drained. Now, even though ABG mix drains better than most other substrates, that water still needs a place to go. And this is why many people incorporate a false bottom. And a false bottom can be, a, you know, it can be something as simple as a drainage layer, like a leak of balls, clay balls. I've seen some people use gravel underneath a, uh, like a screen barrier or something like that. 
Uh, people use egg crate, etc. Basically, what this does is it creates a place for the water to collect once it drains through the ABG. In drier situations, you still can use ABG. I don't see why not. I've used it with tree frogs and some terrestrial species, but I find that it's more useful in dart frog vivarium. But still touching on dart frog vivariums, another substrate that I really wanted to give a lot of attention to was leaf litter. Leaf litter is oftentimes indispensable. Many species live and breed and feed in leaf litter. In fact, many species besides dart frogs appreciate litter, uh, appreciate leaf litter, and many have adapted very, very well to exist in it. Like, um, I'm trying to think of a couple examples here. All right, the Solomon Island leaf frog, the uh, scientific name, oh God, what is it? It's uh, uh, Ceratobatrachus guntherii, and the Malayan horn frog, um, I think it's Megophorus nasuda. Well, they've adapted cryptic coloration and body morphology that resembles leaf litter. So if you're going to be keeping those types of frogs, then that's another great reason to use leaf litter because it's going to mimic what they've adapted to live in in the wild. And when properly sourced, leaf litter lasts a long time and it provides cover for microfauna. Many people use the leaves of native hardwoods and bake them and sanitize them to use as leaf litter. I've done this in the past with driftwood, but it's too much aggravation for me to bother with, so I just purchased mine from vendors. Most vivarium supply places stock leaf litter. I've seen it for sale in places like Amazon and whatnot, but again, you want to be careful where you source it from. You don't want to potentially introduce pesticides, fertilizer, and and herbicides into your vivarium if you sourced your leaf litter from a, a questionable source. In terms of species, I've had the most success with magnolia and live oak. The magnolia leaves are larger. They're about maybe like the size of like a dollar bill. And the live oak is maybe like, like yeah, about the size of like a half a dollar bill. They're a little bit smaller. So combined, they make for a nice look. Sea grape is another nice choice, but it doesn't last as long. And finally, I've got, I've got Indian almond. And Indian almond is nice, but as soon as you get it wet, it deteriorates and it ends up looking like an old cigar. But, but bear in mind, all leaf litter does break down eventually and you may have to freshen it up every few months depending on how active your cleanup crews are and how moist your vivarium is, etc. There's a number of conditions that can cause it to break down faster than others. Uh, another added benefit is that it creates a nice microclimate under it. Just because dart frogs... And many other species like it humid doesn't mean that they like it swampy. And leaf litter provides those dry spots that they appreciate. Certain species, especially like the Phyllobates genus, they're prone to get foot rot, which it's generally understood that that comes from being on an excessively moist substrate. So giving them leaf litter that's damp underneath and moist underneath but dry on the top, it gives them the ability to kind of pick and choose where they want to be. And I know mine, like my mints, they, they love hanging out on dry spots. It's just, you know, they sit on top of the coconut, cocoa huts. They sit on top of the big magnolia leaves. They appreciate the ambient humidity, but they don't really like being like swamped, so to speak. So you want to have that microclimate and providing leaf litter or ABG or even gravel, it can provide a humid, moist hide for um, other species like... Um, Oh, I'm trying to think like uh, springtails, isopods, etc. It's going to give them an area where they can kind of hang out and be comfortable in. Uh, For other species like tree frogs, leaf litter is also aesthetically pleasing. It makes the vivarium look more natural. 
And for people who are concerned about impaction, because impaction is obviously a big factor when you want to choose substrate, if you've got these big chunks of magnolia leaves in there as the substrate, it's less likely that it's going to be consumed by, you know, say like a medium or small sized tree frog. Another benefit is that when you use leaf litter, you can also boil it down and it'll release tannins that'll kind of acidify the substrate and keep it cleaner. Bear in mind though, I mean, even if you don't boil them, the leaves are going to release some tannins, especially if you have a water feature, and it's most likely going to turn to brown. I personally like the naturalistic look of stained water. I think that it's less likely to get algae, and it just looks it looks more natural. You can even imitate some of the um, like some of the biomes, like as a lot of the Amazon tributaries are what they call black water, and a lot of the aquarists will use leaf litter on the bottom to naturally tan the water to give it more of an accurate representation of where the like the target fish come from. I believe neon tetras come from similar like blackwater environments, and that's the reason they actually have those bright colors is because in the blackwater environment, it's just so muted. So if you're expecting to build a water feature with like crystal clear water, um, be careful how you use the leaf litter because it may very well leach into that and, and you know, and stain it. A lot of people, like I said, they, they boil it down. It makes a great medium for tadpoles. That's uh, what we call tadpole tea, where you take like an Indian almond leaf and you, you boil it down. Or sometimes you can just, just put it in some distilled water or, well, excuse me, don't not distilled water. Uh, some people use RO water. Some people use spring. Some people use tap. That's a whole other, dis- a whole other discussion outside the substrate realm. So I don't want to get into that, but uh, it makes for a nice tadpole tea. The only cons I could think of with leaf litter is that sometimes the edges can be sharp. They soften up with time, but it is possible that if you break up like a large magnolia leaf that's dry, you could potentially get an injury. Like some of the, the frogs with more like soft skin, like some of the, um, oh, I'm trying to think. I mean, obviously dark frogs, some of the small pamilios. I'd imagine some of the glass frogs, they can be a little sharp. If you crush one up in your hand, you can kind of get an idea of what I mean. That can actually be mitigated by boiling down or just don't break them up at all, which also works even better. Certain terrestrial species like uh, salamanders, etc. also do fairly well on leaf litter. It provides a lot of hides. It kind of mimics where like the upland areas where a lot of species, like especially here in North America, like some of the ambistoma species, they like to hang out underneath leaf litter when they're not in the breeding season. So that's also another another consideration is if you keep terrestrial caudates. And it's often used over gravel as a simple setup for breeding dark frogs. Well, what about gravel as a substrate? Well, gravel is generally not used today, but going back in time to the late 80s and 90s, gravel was the preferred substrate for pretty much pretty much every herb. For some reason, the wisdom at the time dictated that mammals were kept on cedar and pine, and reptiles, amphibians, and inverts were kept on gravel. Nowadays, we know that none of these options were appropriate for either of their intended purposes, with the exception that, you know, gravel still used sometimes today, but I'll get into that in a minute. I do want to note, though, that you're never going to want to use pine or cedar as a substrate with amphibians, and it's generally accepted that you don't use it with mammals either. Pines and cedars contain some pretty noxious stuff in them. There's some oils and whatnot, and it's not anything that you would really want to use, especially with amphibians. I mean, think about a cedar closet. People build cedar closets to keep out moths. So they're naturally repellent to insects and you you just you you want to avoid them. But back to gravel. 
Years ago, horn frogs were typically set up in terrariums with gravel substrates. It was really, really common in the early 90s. Pea gravel and colored aquarium gravel was generally what like the local pet stops, uh, pet shops sold. And, you know, an 11 year old me didn't know any better. And I must admit, I did keep a few frogs on gravel in the old days. With gravel, though, there is definitely a risk of impaction. And I wouldn't recommend gravel for most non-aquatic species. As a general rule, you obviously want to avoid anything that can fit in an animal's mouth, but that's just common sense. I mean, if you think about it, it's very easy for an overzealous horn frog or a pixie, or I mean, even a white street frog, anything with a real aggressive feeding response to consume a mouthful of gravel, and this is not a situation you want. Large stones are generally okay. I've used them as, as accents in both terrestrial and aquatic setups. I don't think they function very well for horned frogs or pixies because they can't really burrow in them. But on the pro side, in terms of gravel, it can make a nice paludarium look or an aquarium look for the right species. One thing to consider when incorporating gravel into an aquarium or a paludarium is that the source of the gravel and the rocks that it's made of, is that can be a pretty big factor. The reason I mention this is because most uh, types of rocks have a lot of nutrients in them that will ultimately lead to an algae bloom or, in most cases, a bloom of cyanobacteria, which is it's sometimes called blue-green algae, but it's bacteria that can photosynthesize. And this can be extremely difficult to get rid of. It's generally unpleasant. I don't consider myself an experienced Aquarius, but I did learn the hard way that poor choices in gravel resulted in unwanted blooms. It may clear up on its own once the nutrients have been depleted, but that takes time. It took one of, I mean, I'm not a big paludarium person. I have like two, but it took one paludarium about two years before all this was eliminated. So you want to source your gravel appropriately. If you're going to like the big box hardware stores, you know, it's very easy to get a bag of pea gravel for like five bucks, but a lot of those contain silica, other nutrients, et cetera. And you're going to get this nasty, like blue green carpet and it's it's a nightmare to get rid of. So if you can avoid it, avoid it. Try and, you know, there's gravel choices out there. You might have to pay a little extra, but if you source them appropriately, you can get a nice look without having to you know to deal with any unwanted blooms. As an aquatic subject uh, substrate, I, I have mixed opinions depending on the species. I wouldn't keep axolotls on pea gravel because they can ingest it, and also it collects waste too easily. Like certain species, like like axolotls produce a tremendous amount of waste. It's tougher to clean. If you keep your axolotls and you want something rocky, then go with the large river stones. It's easier to pull out like a couple of handfuls of river stones than it is to start dredging up, you know, gravel, vac in the gravel and have all this waste and stuff come up and just make the water a mess. River stones are easy to clean. They're pretty much impossible to swallow, assuming they're bigger than the axolotl. And most people do try to avoid the risk entirely of, of impaction by keeping the axolotls on no, no substrate at all. And I've kept them successfully that way on and off over the years. Uh, I know a few breeders who swear by it and it makes water changes easier. I mean, it generally makes the husbandry for the animal much easier. People have mixed opinions. They want a more naturalistic aquarium for an axolotl. I get that. Again, if you have a more positive experience using gravel and you're willing to put in the work to maintain it, keep it clean, etc., I, I don't see a problem in it. Obviously, you want the particulate size to be something that can't be ingested by the axolotl. If you can pull it off, more power to you. I just personally don't see it as a good idea for axolotls. Uh, with smaller newts, I can see the gravel being okay. I did keep newts years and years ago, like um, at the time... 
Uh, spotted newts were pretty popular. There was a hobby staple, and I used to keep them in aquariums on gravel because the pea gravel was basically the same size as their head, so they weren't going to get that into their mouths. Akin to gravel, the next substrate I'm going to mention is sand, and I've never personally used sand as a substrate for amphibians, and I don't know anyone else who has. I have used it in aquariums, and I know aquatics keepers often use it, like I said earlier, like in blackwater tanks. I don't see it being a practical way to keep majority of amphibians, but if you're an experienced aquarium per- person and you keep caudates, I- I'd love to hear about your experiences if you do keep things on sand in an aquarium. I know a lot of the caudate keepers, newt keepers, etc., they do keep their animals on a sand bottom. I've never really used it though, so I can't really comment on it. I just couldn't imagine keeping a lot of terrestrial species on sand. I, I just I just don't see it, you know, working out really at all. The next substrate I wanted to mention was sphagnum moss. Sphagnum moss is often a first choice for beginners since it looks good out of the bag and it's also one of the main ingredients in ABG. However, you have to be careful as some of the brands tend to mold easily. The cheap New Zealand moss that you kind of find at like the big box hardware stores is usually the best. It's not as green as some of the more like herp aimed brands. I found that some of those tend to like, they, they, they look great, like they're green, but then they kind of just like deteriorate and they mold the real like legit New Zealand sphagnum moss seems to be the best bet. Benefits, it lasts long. Uh, really, it almost lasts forever if it's the right stuff. It holds humidity very well. It holds moisture in and it's real relatively cheap. For microphages species like dart frogs and mantellas, I don't see any risks of impaction, but I wouldn't recommend it as a sole substrate for, for most species. It, it is easily ingested by larger species, so I'd use caution when feeding. It can make a good quarantine sub, though, for dart frogs and mantellas since it, it holds moisture so well. And I guess even, you know, if you had some really, really small tree frogs, etc., I guess it would be, you know, it would be practical as a, as a, um, as a substrate in those situations. Uh, it works also well with shy frogs because it provides a tremendous amount of cover. If you have a new acquisition in quarantine, the um, they they can kind of tend to be like a lot like very very jumpy and, and stressed out. So sometimes the sphagnum moss helps them sort of calm down because there's all these little like little nooks and crannies and whatnot that they can get into and feel a little bit more secure. I know it's also a popular substrate for shipping because it's sort of soft and cushy. Um, for for the larger species like whites, tree frogs, and pixies. I'd avoid it as a full substrate because it, it can be consumed. I've never had an issue per se. And I mean, to be honest, I've never lost a frog to an impaction. And I, I have kept everything on all these substrates, whether that's, you know, right or wrong, whether that's a function of how I fed is, is another matter entirely. But um, you do always want to consider the risk of impaction. I mean, many frogs are fairly adept at spitting things out. But ingestion is always possible. And besides this, the other issue is is keeping it clean. Like many of the like the peat products, it's acidic. It doesn't really rot. It kind of stays forever. You don't usually get a tremendous amount of growth in there, other than some some uh, some mold blooms. But uh, in my opinion, I think it's a little bit more difficult to spot clean, like especially for a larger frog. If you you know if you have a pixie in there on sphagnum moss and it takes a big poop it kind of tends to like 
drain down to the bottom layer and you end up like throwing half of it out anyway. So that's at least my opinion is I think it's a little bit difficult to clean with some of the bigger, the bigger species, but uh, a big pro is that it lasts a long time and it holds humidity very well. Uh, next, we have everyone's favorite, cocoa fiber. Uh, it's cheap, lasts pretty much forever. It's very easy to spot clean. You can just, um, you know, for some of my frogs, I'll take like a little paper cup and just sort of scoop out anything that I have to get rid of. Holds moisture very well. Uh, it doesn't mold that easily. I, I have had mold outbreaks in some of my vivariums with cocoa fiber. If you have it planted well enough, the mold blooms will kind of generally go away. I mean, you always have the, the the fungus is always there, but you don't necessarily have the blooms once things kind of reach a uh, reach a balance. But I actually use cocoa fiber quite often, and I I do incorporate it into some of my own uh, ABG style mixes along with sphagnum moss and charcoal, which I kind of touched on that earlier, but. It's not as good in for drainage as the ABG. So if you are using peat, uh, excuse me, if you are using cocoa fiber as a main substrate and you want to consider drainage, you might want to add um, some, you know, some, some, some charcoal, some sphagnum moss, et cetera, you know, just anything that you think can have, kind of help add, uh, add the drainage. It, it gets waterlogged pretty easily. And that's another thing to consider is if you're keeping a species that uh, likes it moist, likes to burrow, then it, it, it's great. But if you're going to keep a species that's going to want somewhat of a drier substrate, it, it can be a little bit difficult getting it to sort of st- kind of reach a balance where you want it. Uh, you could moisten a lower end, like if you want to, if you want to give the frog a gradient, you could moisture a bottom layer of cocoa fiber and then put some dryer on top. I've seen that work. It's really just, it, it's like a sponge. I think that that's my biggest criticism of it is that it, it literally is a sponge. Even when you buy a big brick of it and you soak it, it, it expands and it just, it absorbs moisture like crazy. The best way, in my opinion, to lessen the risk of substrate impaction, and again, I've never lost something on on um, on cocoa fiber, but if you want to avoid issues with substrate, like let's just say that you want to keep a species on a substrate that could potentially be impacted. My advice would be to change your feeding strategy. So rather than sticking a feeder like directly into the tank with a species that you know is, is an aggressive feeder, could get it in its mouth, take, take the animal out, feed it to his feed it in a separate container. That's pretty popular with a lot of the pixie keepers. My pixie, I can take him out put him in a Rubbermaid container, uh, get some doobie roaches in there, maybe give him a pinky, whatever. And as long as he's in that temporary enclosure and he's eating, he's not going to impact any substrate. So that's another possibility. If you do want to use something like that, think about your feeding strategy. I also like to cup feed. And I don't know if I've ever touched on this before, but essentially what you do is you take a 16-ounce deli cup. And this doesn't work for for pixies, uh, but it would work for tree frogs. And some of the more, you know, uh, arboreal species, I basically take a 16 ounce deli cup. I'll take a few crickets or a few roaches. I'll dust them and I'll just throw them in the cup. Uh, sometimes I'll weight the cup down with a, like maybe like a piece of river stone or something like that. This way the frogs can go in there, pick off the prey items at their leisure, and they, they're not going to come into contact with the substrate at all. You can even elevate the cup if you want to keep it up higher because... One of the reasons why substrate impaction is a risk is because many animals, especially like arboreal animals, I mean, they don't live in cocoa fiber. They don't live 
a couple of inches off the substrate. I mean, even if you have a relatively tall vivarium, you know, like a 36 inch tall, it's still not necessarily at the height that many species will be at. I mean, there are certain species that, that dwell exclusively in the canopy. There are certain species that hang out at the base of trees. I mean, like even like, um, like Ufago pomilio, they can be found at all different heights on trees. But the point is like your animal's not going to come into contact with copovirus substrate in the wild. So it, if you want to create more of a natural feeding situation that's going to pretty much eliminate the risk of impaction, don't put the food where the substrate is. No substrate near the food, no impaction. And that should be fairly straightforward. If you have a species that's a bit more delicate with its feeding response that you're concerned about, uh, I have a Ceratophorus uh, aurita. And this particular frog has more of a shy feeding response, so I worry about impaction uh, on the cocoa fiber. So I didn't keep it on cocoa fiber. I put it on cypress mulch because the chunks of bark were bigger, and it wasn't possible for this frog to get the, like this a massive chunk of cypress mulch in its mouth if it had a more aggressive feeding response. So again, you know, if you're worried about impaction, eliminate the particle size, and that's pretty much your answer there. Uh, this frog, I didn't feel like taking out because it has, um, it's not as aggressive and taking it out stresses it a little bit. So that's another, con another consideration is if you do have a species that is easily stressed or even an individual that's easily stressed and you don't want to remove it and put it in a separate feeding container, don't use that substrate. Um, cocoa fiber, you know, with... With the impaction risks aside, I mean, and again, you know, impaction isn't necessarily as, as rampant as people make it out to be. There are plenty of people that keep frogs on cocoa fiber and don't have any issues for years. But again, it is a possibility and it is something that you want to be cognizant about. But it's not optimal for all situations. If you do have a species that likes to burrow, though, cocoa fiber is pretty useful. It tends to hold its shape very well. And I don't brumate or estivate any of my frogs. And I know that that's kind of become more commonplace now. If anyone has any input on brumating or estivating their frogs, I, I would love to hear about it. And I I'd imagine that if you were going to let them, you know, uh, brumate or estivate, I mean, anybody out, brumate is basically when uh, the weather's cold, estivate is when the weather's hot. So when you have your pixie, the substrate dries out, it makes that layer of mucus over it. That's, that's estivating, whereas a species that would go underground for the winter, that would be a brumation. So um, kind of like hibernation. But I'd imagine that if you had a situation where you wanted to brumate an animal, Cocoa fiber would probably be a good, uh, probably be a good substrate. I, I don't know. I've never done it before, so I can't really say for sure. But if you have input out there, you know, reach out to me. I'd love to hear it. And backing up a little bit, I mentioned cypress mulch. And I must say, one of my favorite substrates has always been cypress mulch. Years ago, there was an agricultural supply in my neighborhood. And I used to get, uh, it was like $4 for a three cubic foot bag. And nowadays, that shop's since closed. And nowadays, I, I only see it available in pet stores who sell it for like $20 for a cubic foot. I mean, the amount of money that they charge for cypress mulch is, is astronomical. But I guess if you have a small collection, one or two frogs, then I could, I could justify it. But price differences aside, cypress mulch can be the perfect substrate for many situations. It resists mold. It doesn't decay. It holds moisture well. And in most cases, like I said with, with my, uh, my Arita, the chunks are too big for you know, the average smaller sized amphibian to ingest. I mean, I'd use caution with a larger pixie or larger horn frog, but 
cypress mulch was my go-to for years. I kept white's tree frogs on it. I kept fire salamanders, pixies, snakes, tegus, blood plisons, pretty much anything on it. It makes a good choice for a naturalistic looking terrarium if you don't want to convert uh, if you don't want to convert your terrarium into something that has more of a, a substrate that you, you, you don't want to change. I and mean, if you want something that you can spot clean easily and if you need to pull it all out, you can without breaking the bank and disturbing microfauna too much. Cypress mulch is definitely the way to go. It does really, really well with cleanup crews though. Um, in fact, well, going back 20 years when I started using cypress mulch, I found a cleanup crew by accident because I found these little white little critters on the cypress mulch one night and... They were on poop. My my pixie, you know, knocked one out of the park, and it was covered in what I found out later were, were springtails. And they did such a good job cleaning things up that I left them be. At first, I was con- concerned that they might be some sort of mice or parasites or something like that, and then I was able to figure out what they were, and I just left them there. And this is going back twenty four, you know, twenty some odd years ago. So that was another big selling point for me with the cypress mulch was that it kind of came with a cleanup crew that just piggy way, uh, piggybacked its way in. I didn't even have to introduce it. Um, if you do use mulch off label, as they say, meaning if you're going to go to a garden supply or a big box store, avoid black mulch and red mulch that they have dyes and colorings in them. I wouldn't trust that. You want to make sure that you get something that's not in contact with any type of pesticide, herbicides, etc., And it can even be as simple as, you know, you could have a bag of mulch that's sitting next to a bag of fertil- a bag of fertilizer. Someone at the store spills it on the bag. It makes its way in and that could potentially cause harm for your, that could potentially cause harm for your animals. Um, getting back to the microfauna though, I just realized something here. One of the reasons why you want to incorporate microfauna besides the cleanup crew aspect of it is for it flies if you've ever kept an animal on a moist or, or like a wet substrate you're going to get for it flies they're these little gnats uh people often see them around potted plants a lot of times they come in on potted plants that you'll, you'll 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 buy and the the soil is moist and they just sort of show up and they're generally unpleasant and the nice thing about having microfauna is they outcompete them so you're less likely to get forward flies. I mean, all the all the vivariums that I have, I keep microfauna in. Usually, it's just springtails, but I don't have issues with forward flies. The one enclosure that I don't uh, have any kind of microfauna in, I get the I uh, get the forward flies. So that's also something to consider. I didn't have that much of a problem with the forward flies on the cypress mulch, even without the springtails. So. That's another selling point, but look for hundred percent natural Cypress. You know, if you can get to like a local nursery, they might be able to help you find something that doesn't have anything in it. Organic doesn't necessarily mean anything. I wouldn't trust organic because there can be other additives to it. So just use your discretion. Now, moving on, we've covered some of the more natural types of substrate, but there's also many man-made products out there that I'd like to mention. And one of the most popular is good old fashioned paper towels. Unbleached paper towels are generally considered to be one of the safest substrates out there, especially for tree frogs. Now, Eric, you had asked me about paper towels, and yes, uh, paper towels are definitely safe under certain circumstances. Assuming they hold their shape and they don't flake off into little pieces, then yes, by and large, it is very very safe. And 
especially for tree frogs, because again, you have a species that might not necessarily ever come into contact with the ground. And now you have it in a small enclosure with, with a bottom, with a substrate. So yes, uh, paper towels are good. Some of the cons though is paper towel tends to foul very easily and it needs to be changed regularly. If you put a fresh paper towel on your white's tree frog on Friday, you spend the night or you spend the weekend at a friend's house and you come home Sunday night, whatever that frog deposited on that paper towel is still going to be there when you get home and probably in a serious state of decay. And that's why I like some of the more acidic substrates because they don't allow that decomposition to happen in the same way. You know, there'll be some there'll be some microorganisms and whatnot that'll sort of break down the waste anyway. But you know, it, it, you're going to come home and it's going to be there waiting for you. A lot of times, it'll have mold growing on it and whatnot. So you want to consider that if you're going to use paper towels, that you're going to have to change them pretty regularly. In fact, I, I know people who change them daily. Uh, I have no life, <laughs> so uh, for me, it wouldn't be an issue changing paper towels daily, but if you're looking for a long-lasting substrate that you don't have to change constantly, the paper towels might not be for you. Another pro, though, is they are great for quarantine. Getting back to the uh, you know the waste angle of it, paper towels can be changed regularly, and they're also really easy to get fecal off of. So if you want to get a fecal off of your animal, getting it off of a relatively clean paper towel is preferable to using a, a more soil-like substrate, which is going to have microorganisms, microorganisms, excuse me, microorganisms in it anyway. So that's another kind of pro-con. Earlier, I mentioned uh, the um, ability to hold moisture of different substrates. Sphagnum moss is probably the best, but paper towels in terms of maintaining moisture is probably the worst and a sheet of wet paper towel has more exposed surface area than a layer of say packed cobalt cocoa fiber or packed sphagnum moss uh, leaf litter or abg and such it, it can dry out quickly and if you've ever put a wet paper towel under a heat lamp like in uh, you know if you have a bearded dragon and you have a basking lamp you, you know i'll spray mine down i keep i keep my bearded dragon on craft paper but i spray that craft paper down with the uh, with the mister 20 minutes later it's all evaporated so if you do keep a species that's a bit warmer or you're keeping it in drier ambient conditions that's something to consider because if you moisten that paper towel and your furnace is going all night and you've got your ventilation you know really really open that paper towel could evaporate and i I have had some situations where i've seen people use paper towels as a substrate too much ventilation the moisture escaped and you end up with a crispy critter or a frog jerky and that's not a situation that you want to have if you can avoid it so uh, if you use them appropriately paper towels are great uh, it's just one of those situations where it's a matter of preference. Some people do keep their frogs on dry paper towels. And in those situations, there's a lot of high ambient humidity, 80-90% ambient humidity. You're not necessarily going to need to wet your paper towels. If you're in my basement where the humidity goes down to like 30% in the winter with the with the um with the boiler on, I can't really trust a wet paper towel to maintain the humidity in an enclosure without modifying the ventilation, you know, cutting some of it off. But this is going to vary by species. So it's not something you can take as a banner advice. You're going to have to uh, sort of beta test it first. So 
if you are going to keep an animal on paper towels, you might want to gauge how fast and how slow those are going to maintain the moisture levels before you introduce the animal into it. But you should really do that with any with any enclosure. I mean, when in doubt, there are ways to introduce more humidity into a paper towel type situation, whether it's a misting system or hand system or, or whatever. Uh, another option that I see is Hygrolon and EpiWeb. These are essentially fabrics or, or like foam products that wick water up into them and they're used very often as background hardscapes in some of the more natural ter- uh, naturalistic terrariums. There's a lot of really good YouTube videos out there about using EpiWeb and Hygrolon. And again, this is not an endorsement. They're just two of the more commonly available products. I've seen similar products like uh, speaker cable, uh, not speaker cable, excuse me, but like speaker fabric used off-label in a similar way. The idea is that it wicks water up high. It's great for a drip wall, but you can use it as a substrate. Uh, typically people will use it over over a false bottom with some sort of a, a misting system or something like that. And it is a great medium to grow moss on. So if you are looking to grow moss, you have the lights, you have the moisture and you have the patience. Uh, EpiWeb and Hygrolon are great options to consider. They essentially last forever because they're artificial and th- th- you can get a very nice effect actually if you want a substrate or a background that's going to look like nothing other than just greenery it's the way to go it it does take some experience though so if you're a beginner you might want to get some experience under your belt and practice first before you really commit to a whole big build i also see something that's similar to mattress foam and i I see this used more in asia than in the u.s and i really don't know much about it so i can't really comment on it but uh, I assume it holds moisture. Other than that, I, I really don't see much of a benefit to it. So, I mean, my listeners in Asia, if you can enlighten me on the use of that, like mattress foam and how it works, I, I'd love to hear it because over here in the U.S., it's not a particularly popular choice. I have seen it used as like a like a cave for leopard geckos, where you kind of lay it in the tank and it would have like a burrow in it. I don't know. Uh, me personally, I don't think that I would want to use that as a substrate, but there may be other opinions out there. As far as artificials go, I, I wanted to include these last two, even though I don't really recommend them for amphibians. These include reptile bark and, uh, excuse me, not reptile bark, reptile carpet and astroturf. Reptile carpet became popular in the early 90s. It's expensive and it is a B-I-T-C-H to clean. When I worked in a local store years ago, they wanted us to push Reptile Cart. It had just come out maybe maybe around 92, 93, and I actually, I actually got in trouble for telling a customer that uh, she was better off using newspaper than the Reptile Carpet because you could throw it away. And it wasn't for a frog. It was, it was for a snake. But, and uh, I, I got in trouble for not pushing the product that the store wanted me to sell. But it's a nightmare to clean. And I think the idea was that once you try to clean it, you just throw it away and buy a new one anyway. It looks very, very similar to a commercial carpet. Uh, it doesn't hold moisture well. It, it gets nasty. It gets mildewy. For certain animals that have claws, I mean, with very, very few exceptions, amphibians don't generally have claws, but um, if you were to keep... At the time, iguanas were really popular, but I mean, it's a it's a great way to get an uh, you know a claw stuck in that uh, in that carpet and have a problem. So I, I wouldn't recommend that. 
I still see them for sale. I see them marketed to leopard geckos and bearded dragons. I personally wouldn't use it. I think the product is just basically, it's garbage. I don't think it has any business being a substrate for animals. But uh, people use it. I personally wouldn't recommend that one. The second one, AstroTurf, isn't as bad. AstroTurf is essentially, looks like a plastic uh, car, like a plastic carpet. Usually it's green. It looks like grass. People often use it as outdoor carpet or uh, as, a, as a substitute for outdoor grass or turf where you can't have any. You'll see it a lot of times. Use something similar used on athletic fields. It's not as bad as a reptile carpet. I mean, you can take it out and scrub it and clean it. It doesn't absorb things since it's like a, a like a solid plastic. But when an animal defecates on it, it, it's it gets gross and it's just it's you can't really spot clean it as easily. Uh, I, again, I've seen people use it, but it also it doesn't really offer anything in terms of a microclimate. Uh, animals can't hide in it. You can't, I mean, I guess you could have microfauna on it, but I wouldn't imagine it would be as successful. So I would avoid that for pretty much any species with the exception of maybe tree frog species, because they're not as dependent upon a substrate. And I guess if you didn't want them to ingest something in that case, it would be practical. Finally, after considering all the aforementioned, there's also the old no substrate is a good substrate approach. To clarify, I should really call I should really call this as a water only approach. This may sound crazy, but there are times when no substrate is a good choice. Earlier, I mentioned axolotls, but there are a few species that can benefit from a a no substrate approach, meaning just a couple of inches of water. A great example is semi aquatic frogs, such as members of the Philoderma genus, commonly known as mossy frogs. I've kept mine successfully on what could be considered a paludarium, but the bottom of the tank is just a few inches of water, some stones. I have some pothos hanging out in there and a lot of cork bark set at various angles. In a situation like this, there's almost no possibility of, inf- of impaction. And with some tweaks, the setup requires pretty much no maintenance. They make use of the water's edge. They hang out on the cork bark. And when I feed them, I dump the crickets onto the cork bark and they pick them off of that. Uh, another possibility is rain chambers, even though they're not uh, officially a permanent enclosure although i guess in some places they could be i don't usually i don't generally see substrate used people will use egg crate or a couple other things but it it, going back to the philoderma it it works as long as you provide plenty of cork bark slabs on angles etc because this mimics the tree holes and whatnot and the the kind of like stream beds and whatnot that they live in in the wild because they don't really depend on the substrate the way certain other species would and another thing to remember is by just using water only, you eliminate the algae blooms that you'd associate with things like gravel and whatnot. And it just generally makes for a cleaner, more maintenance-free vivarium. Examples where you shouldn't use a water-only substrate would be with some of the larger uh, fat frogs, you know, Pac-Mans and Pixies. Uh, Years ago, people did keep them in just like a half an inch of water with a little... uh, slab of slate to crawl out on once in a while this was bad because you effectively you took away the frog's ability to burrow and to kind of nestle you know into a spot and get comfortable and at the same time if they defecate into that water they shed that fouls really really quickly and they could tox out so i've seen people lose frogs years ago from just keeping them on like a half an inch of water bad idea for a situation like that good idea for other situations though 
Before I wrap up, I wanted to add a few observations about substrate that aren't directly related to captive amphibian husbandry per se, but I thought it was worthwhile to mention them. Now, I'm I'm not going to say what I'm going to say to come off as preacher or anything like that, because it's, that's never been my attention with this show. I don't believe in preaching to people, but I think that we do need to consider the sustainability of a lot of the materials that we use as substrates. Sustainability, I don't like buzzwords, but it's often the elephant in the room when it comes to substrate choices. Many of us strive to be environmentally conscious in our choices because we appreciate the natural environment that the species we so enjoy keeping in captivity come from. It seems counterintuitive to keep a frog or a salamander or whatever in captivity on a substrate that's produced at the expense of its wild counterparts. I mean, however, substrates aren't exactly what you would consider to be environmentally friendly. And I'm just, I'm just going to go over a few here. I'll start with the cocoa products. Since they're the usually the default substrate and they're used by many terrestrial amphibian keepers and many of the more like go-to species are kept on cocoa fiber. It's obviously a byproduct of the coconut industry and coconut farming is considered to be less detrimental than other crops like sugarcane and palm oil. I, I, I read through a couple of studies just as I was doing my research for this episode and uh, I did I found a study... It was published in the Journal of Current Biology by, uh, I'm trying to pronounce this uh, gentleman's last name. I think it's Majard et al. Uh, the article name is Coconut. F- uh, well, anyway, uh, coconut farming is not necessarily as inf- environmentally inf- uh, friendly as it was once thought to be. In fact, the IUCN Red List it lists 66 species as being affected by coconut farming. So. Take from that what you will. I don't mention this to denounce cocoa fiber at all, but it's worthwhile to consider where the source of your substrate comes from because it might not be available at some point in the next few years. And that kind of leads me to my next one, which is sphagnum moss. Now, sphagnum moss is in a similar a similar position as peat farming because it's not as renewable as, say, something like coconut uh, coconut products. It can take decades for a peat bog to renew, and obviously a peat bog is a preferred habitat for many species of amphibians. It's a valuable wetland. So when you source your sphagnum moss, you do want to consider that as well. Tree fern fibers are also another contentious subject because you are depleting an area of, of you know the natural world to provide substrate for an animal you're keeping in captivity. So uh, I could go further on this, but that's not my intention. Again, I'm not a preachy person. I just thought it would be worthwhile to mention some of these things because regulations are going to increase, you know, as the world gets smaller and more and more species are threatened and endangered and more species are kept in captivity and whatnot. You know, this is not just two or three people. This is a lot of people doing this across the world. So there might come a point where where sphagnum moss might not be a viable source anymore. Cocoa products might not be a viable source. Who knows? We might have to consider other substrates at some point, maybe more man-made. Don't know. But Again, this is not meant to be a referendum on the environment, and I'm not trying to shame anyone who uses any of these substrates. I use them myself. I only bring it up so that we can just be conscious of it and consider the sustainability of the substrates that we use when we make those choices. There may very well come a point in the near future when these substrates are no longer available or may even be illegal. So take from that what you will. In any event, I want to thank everyone for putting up with me for the past, uh, oh, probably about an hour or so. 
And uh, I have some good stuff coming up. I have a couple of collaborations coming up with some other podcasters on a variety of topics. And uh, I've got some uh, some repeat guests coming back. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Maybe learned a couple of things. And I'll talk to you guys again soon.